Welcome back to another episode of Shifting Schools. Have you ever wondered how trauma in youth shape their behaviors? Well, today we dive into this question with our guest, Dr. Travis Wright, a nationally recognized expert on school-based support for children who have experienced trauma. In this episode, we explore three key areas. First, we discuss Dr. Wright's innovative approach to trauma-informed care and education, as outlined in his book, Emotionally Responsive Teaching. This book is a resource for educators seeking to understand and support children who have experienced trauma. Second, we learn about the BASIS Project, a school-based intervention founded by Dr. Wright at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This initiative focuses on supporting young children experiencing homelessness, offering valuable insight into the unique challenges and needs of these students. Lastly, we'll dive into Dr. Wright's experience and insight from his career as a school-based mental health counselor, public school teacher, and early childhood educator. His journey includes working in Washington, D.C. and Boston, Massachusetts, providing a rich background for understanding the complexities of educational support in diverse settings. Before we start, a quick word from our sponsor, Money Pickle. Are you in the middle of your teaching career and wondering how to best manage your finances? Money Pickle's financial advisors specialize in helping educators like us. They offer practical advice on investments, savings, and even navigating pension plans. With Money Pickle, you're not just getting an advisor, you're gaining a financial partner who understands your unique needs as an educator. Head to moneypickle.com slash shifting schools today to sign up for a complimentary, no obligation video call with a financial advisor. That's moneypickle.com slash shifting schools. We thank them for being a sponsor of this podcast and of educators at large. Now, let's join Dr. Wright in a conversation that promises to be both enlightening and inspiring, shedding light on how we can better support the emotional and educational needs of children who have faced adversity. And with that, on with the show. All right. Welcome back to the Shifting Schools podcast. I'm so excited to be joined today by Dr. Travis Wright, who is a nationally recognized expert on school-based support for children. He uh, is coming to us from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Dr. Travis, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Jeff. I'm thrilled to be here. Let's uh, get started. Uh, You've got a new book that came out titled Emotionally Responsive Teaching. Can you tell us a little bit about the book uh, and a new conversation about supporting the well-being of children that you you lay out in that? that Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the goals of the book is to broaden the way that we think about trauma and trauma-informed practice. That's a word that we hear sort of used all the time now. (laughs) It's sort of the new buzzword, but the, but it's used very imprecisely. Mm. And often it's sort of used, um, I think increasingly it's used as code, sort of the way that the word at risk started to become coded right. for yeah. certain kind of identities. Yeah. And trauma isn't an identity. Trauma is really a physiological response to being filled with terror. Mm. And I think that when we think about trauma, we have to think both about sort of what children have experienced, not Mm -hmm. just who they are, but what they've experienced and how that experience is sort of affecting them and showing up in their 
lives. Mm. Trauma is not behavior. It's actually the opposite of behavior. Behavior is sort of willful and intentional and something that children kind of use to have their needs met. When children are truly traumatized, that's a physiological response. Like they fight, flee, or freeze because they are literally afraid for their Mm. lives. And I think that when we are supporting children who've experienced trauma, we have to think fundamentally about them as being afraid. And when you think about the way that we typically talk about interventions, we talk about sort of um, sort of what to do. So if yeah. a child is struggling or if the child is traumatized, these are the five things that you do. These are the frameworks for intervention. But, you know, that that doesn't really square with like the emotional experience of mm. being afraid. Mm. And especially when we think about young children, almost all of the traumas that they experience in their life is somehow implicated in relationships. So either someone couldn't keep them safe, someone hurt them, someone they witnessed someone that they were loved that they loved and cared for being hurt. Mm-hmm. And so trauma is fundamentally, especially for children, a relational experience. It's an experience of terror. It's an emotional experience. And those things kind of manifest through these physiological responses, but it isn't behavior, mm. right? Like when children sort of don't receive the appropriate kind of support, Um, for a long period of time, eventually those traumatic responses can start to function like behavior, right? Like Mm -hmm. if kids don't really know how else to respond, they're going to respond those ways. And so I'm not saying that sort of traumatic responses can't become like behavior patterns, right? but but they started as fear. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, when typically when we in schools especially, are thinking about how to support children, we almost always think about supporting them through behavior and behavioral change and behavioral interventions. And those things typically use power and control. So we kind of take power away from kids. We get them to do what we want them to do, and we reward them by giving them more power mm-hmm. back. Right. And so sure. in a certain way, we're asserting that we are more powerful than the child undergirding that is some sort of fear and intimidation, right? Mm -hmm. Like maybe more passive. Like I'm not saying that, you know, everybody who uses behavioral interventions are scary. Right. But if you think about a child who is traumatized, fundamentally being afraid, and then someone walks in and tries to take power away from them or reminds them of how much more powerful they are than the child, that's scary. Mm. And I think the way people are hardwired to respond to fear is they fight, they flee, or they freeze. Mm -hmm. And so I think I call that the trauma dance. When we think we're trying to help a kid, when what we do makes the kid get bigger and then suddenly we get bigger and scarier and the child gets bigger and scarier. And then we're, and suddenly we hate ourselves and we hate the child and like, (laughs) like everything has exploded all over the classroom. Like that's the trauma dance. When Mm -hmm. we use power and control, to try to support someone who's afraid that just is a recipe for disaster. Mm. So my book, Emotionally Responsive Teaching, is really kind of recasting that work of supporting children who are afraid um, through a wider lens. So Mm. basically, I sort of begin with this question, like, what does it mean to teach a kid who is afraid? Mm. 
right? And and it isn't just about what do we do. You know, there are certainly strategies that we can use to help children feel safer. But notice that's a very different goal than helping children be successful and behave. That's true. Right? Like yeah. I'm really focused on helping children feel safe and then building those skills at sort of academic achievement or tending to what's happening um, and in the classroom. So safety has to come first. And as adults who are supporting kids who are afraid, we have to be very aware of not being scary. Mm. Um, And we also have to understand that children who have been traumatized have almost always been hurt by someone who says they love them. Mm. And so it really kind of shifts the paradigm. So a lot of times, you know, when I'm talking with teachers and I'm listening to their frustration, they say, you know, this child is so disrespectful. Right. And there's this kind of assumption that kids aren't ready to learn until they are respectful. And when we really think about what respect is, it's kind of compliance and submission. But for children who have been hurt, for children who are really afraid, it isn't in their best interest to automatically submit to every adult that they meet, right? If someone has hurt you, you should be skeptical. You should be suspicious. You should make them sort of prove that they're safe. But when Mm. kids sort of show up in our classrooms with that stance, we sort of say, well, that kid's not ready to learn or that kid's disrespectful or that kid has a behavior problem. And so I'm really interested in sort of shifting that lens from sort of how do we require kids to respect us as a precondition to learning to instead thinking about how do I teach in a way that it helps children feel safe and that we earn their respect. Mm. Right. So how do we structure our classroom? How do we structure our relationships so that children feel valued, respected, safe, bounded so that they want to learn so that they can learn so that we're not actually getting in the way of their learning by keeping them in this constant state of fear. And it's pretty complicated. You know, trauma is complicated. Coming out of trauma is complicated. And so I think the book is really trying to help teachers understand sort of how the child who is traumatized sees the world Mm. and to think about the role that we can play in sort of perpetuating that fear, but also more importantly, how we can help them heal. You know, to be successful in life, you have to be able to connect with other people. That is the single most important predictor of happiness and well-being. And if we think about trauma as being like a real breach of trust with regards to relationship, healing from trauma is is about learning to trust and feel safe and Mm. sort of be held in relationships again. And, um, you know, one of the things I say in the book is that the kids who need our love the most are almost always the most difficult to like. That is so true. (laughs) Yeah. And that, that's what I'm talking about when I talk about emotionally responsive teaching. So how do we do the work internal to ourselves to be able to show up for a child who, who may not, who may be trying very hard to keep us at arm's length right. and how do we respect their boundaries? How do we respect their strength? And at the same time, sort of help them learn to trust and feel mm. connected again. So it's a very different, um, you know, it's not at odds with what, like what I'm talking about isn't at odds with what people are talking about typically as trauma informed care. Right. But it's 
really paying attention to sort of the the relational environment in which some of those strategies are implemented because it mm. actually does matter why we're doing it and how it feels to mm. the child. Yeah. You know, it isn't just about these are the strategies like, you know, you can have a classroom routine and you can have trauma sensitive practices, but if you're not connected to the kids or the kids don't feel like you understand that they don't feel safe, or if you're doing those things from a compliance perspective, like you have to do this, you have to do this, you have to do that. Then even if we're doing the right thing, if we're doing it for the wrong reason, it can actually continue to damage or at the very least sort of polarize the children from our classrooms. Mm. Could you, is do you have an example? I'm just trying to think here for teachers who are listening to this. Is there an example that you can give us of a teacher or and student, maybe uh, either, you know, you can either make up one or maybe you have, I'm sure, hundreds of examples of this where teachers were able to take that step back, look at it from an emotionally responsive approach. And then what what were they able to do with that that child to help them kind of engage, for lack of a better term, or feel safe uh, understanding the trauma that child had and was going yeah, through? Yeah, you know, the, 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 one of the stories that's right at the top of my mind is a child that I and a teacher with whom I worked for um, the better part of a year, a couple of years ago. And that child had experienced a lot of trauma, mm-hmm. um, was raised by a caregiver who was depressed and who also struggled with sort of substance abuse issues. And so basically the child had been raised by a caregiver whose affect was always flat. Okay. So like a good day, a bad day, happy birthday, you're in it trouble. Matter. It all looked the same except for when the parent became really angry, mm-hmm. right? So when the parent got really frustrated, then the parent would lose it. So basically the child had learned, I need to keep myself really small or like, it doesn't matter if I'm good. It doesn't matter if I'm bad. It doesn't matter what I do. Like it's always the same unless my parent loses it. And sometimes they lose it because they're mad at me. And sometimes they lose it because they're just mad. So you have this child who's sort of showing up at school, second grade, constantly scanning the environment for like what's going to happen to me next, Mm. but not really sure about why those things are happening. Right. Right. Like this is a child that didn't, the idea of cause and effect or that my actions were linked to consequences. The child had no innate sense of that. So this was a child that sort of did whatever he wanted to do in the classroom. Like it, you know, like it, the child really, like you could ask the child the rules of the classroom and the child could tell you, And then you could look at the child's behavior and it was completely disconnected from the rules of the classroom. And the teacher really started to feel like this child was like a bad child. Yeah. Right. Because the kid sort of didn't follow the rules and the kid would say he knew the rules, but he didn't follow the rules. And the teacher would say, you know, why are you doing that? He was like, because this is what I want to do. And she Mm. was like, I don't you don't get to do what you want to do. And he was like, what do you mean? I don't get to do what I want to do. <laughs> and so she was really viewing everything through the lens of like, this kid doesn't fit. This kid is destroying my classroom. This kid is making my day hard. This kid knows what he's supposed to do and he just doesn't do it. Meanwhile, the child was like, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't look at your face and see that you're frustrated. And I don't even know what that means. Right. Right. Like the child didn't even understand that the teacher's like the child had no concept of frustration. 
because everything in the child's life was like neutral right until i got in Mad. big trouble yeah. right and so the child had not really been praised or punished for that matter right the child felt like just sometimes bad things happen but most of the time i can do whatever i want to do yeah. and no one had ever really stopped to explain to the child that like the rules of school and the rules at home are different and i know that may sound hard for people to believe yeah but when you are traumatized and you're spending half of your day kind of dissociated or worried about what's going to happen when you get home or thinking about what happened that morning, you just miss a lot of the details. Right? Yeah. So right. the kid literally was just sort of disoriented at school, mm. um, like was just kind of going through the day in this really chaotic, disorganized way. The teacher was really frustrated. The teacher started to kind of punish the child. The child did not understand that that was because of the child's actions. The child was viewing it through the lens of what happened. So the kid started to think, well, this teacher doesn't like me and everybody doesn't like me and everyone's out to get me. So then the child started to feel more defensive. And so the child was like becoming more aggressive and the teacher was becoming more punitive. And you, it just was pretty toxic, right? Yeah. And, it, and so one of the things that we did was really kind of support the teacher in kind of understanding this, right? Like just giving the teacher this information and, and helping her understand how some of those behaviors were developing and that they weren't personal. Like the kid wasn't behaving this way because he hated the teacher. The kid was yeah. behaving this way because he didn't, this is how he knew how to behave. Right. Right. Like right. just that reframing mm. created a little more margin in the classroom and then allowing the teacher to start talking with the kid about here versus there. Mm. Right. So instead of sort of viewing the child as just behaving badly or just not resilient or just a behavior problem, the teacher was able to say, you know, what happens here is not the same as what's expected of you here. Let's talk about here. Mm. and let's practice what it would look like to be successful here. Doesn't it feel good to be successful here? Like, and so it was literally starting at a very different place with that child than we thought, you know, people just kind of assume that you come to school and you're their rules and you know that yeah. you follow rules. And that's Agreed. kind of the teacher sort of started with the assumption that this is where the child was. And that assumption really sort of, colored the way that she viewed the child. But when she was able to see that the child was really doing the best he could, even if it wasn't good enough. Yeah. And that we had to start from a very different place and that we also had to do some reparation. Like the teacher had to sort of come to understand that the child was now afraid of her. Right. And she was like, how can the, like, that was hard for her to bear at first. Right. Yeah. Like, but once she started to understand kind of, the child's lens on the world and that it really, you know, that she was also kind of playing a role in the script of his life that she, you know, she was cast in a part yeah. that it wasn't about her, but it was just about what the world had showed this child. Suddenly we helped her see that changing her responses, changing the way that she was interacting with the child was actually starting to write a new script. Mm. And so that really started to shift that relationship instead of a relationship that was built on sort of power and control. It really became a relationship that was built on 
understanding, curiosity, respect, trust, celebration. And the child at first was really disoriented. The child was like, what is this? Yeah, and, right. Well, I can only I don't imagine. But, but, it, but over time, we really worked on it. I mean, like, I think the moment that I think shows this most clearly is, you know, I was working with the child in therapy and I was working with the teacher and the teacher was like, the child was like, the kid, the teacher hates me. Yeah. And the teacher was like, the kid hates me and maybe I don't like the child. <laughs> yeah, right. And I don't like the child so much either. Right. I was like, and I was like, okay, I'm feeling that. It, you know, that's exactly what it feels like for yeah. both of you to be there. And yeah. so, you know, there was this moment where I sort of said to the teacher, like, you know, let's let's figure out a way to pull this around. And so I was coaching the child to sort of raise his hand and answer a question in class. Like we wanted the child mm-hmm. to get some positive attention. We wanted the child to sort of learn how to have his needs met. So I was like, let's create this magic moment. And I, you know, I pointed out for the teacher who had stopped calling on him because she was afraid that he would be disruptive, like, you know, give him a chance. So we kind of planned this whole thing where like he was ready to answer a question. She was ready to call on him. He raised his hand. She called on him. He said an answer that she liked. And she was like, yay, way to go. Yeah. And the kid stood up screaming bloody murder, ran across the room and tried to hide in the in the oven in the play corner. Oh, wow. And the teacher was like, see, not, you know, I'm trying my best and nothing yeah, is misbehaving. Yeah. And I was like, let's there's something more going on here. Yeah. And so, you know, the co-teacher kind of took the class on. I pulled the two of them together And basically, you know, what we figured out was that any time in his life that someone showed a strong emotion, it was almost always Always followed by physical violence. Oh, wow. So even though she was really happy for him, everything in his body said, oh, my God, she's about to torment you. Yeah. And so I think that was a really wonderful moment for her to be able to say to him, I, I when I did this. It was because I was proud of you and this is how I wanted you to feel inside. And it was a really powerful moment for her to hear, wow, this child has had so much pain. Yeah. And so what we were able to do is to sort of to kind of create this strategy for, you know, because we wanted him to experience positive emotions. We wanted him to have new emotions, but but we had to build up his tolerance. And so we developed together this strategy of like narrating. So she would stop and she would say, okay, I'm about to make a big happy face. That Mm -hmm. means I'm proud of you. I want it to make you feel good inside. Are you ready for it? And he would say, okay. And then she would go, yay. (laughs) Right. And she didn't have to do that all the, like for the whole year, but for a while, like that's what he needed. And, you know, some teachers would say that's too much work and I don't want to do it. Thankfully, this teacher said, you know, nothing is working unless I do it. Right. And when we provided the right sort of support and gave her the skills that she needed to sort of understand how the child was feeling, she was really happy to meet those needs. Yeah. It felt that way to the child. And then they built this really beautiful connection. Like he really trusted her. He really Mm. felt safe like she felt really successful like this is a teacher and a kid that both probably would have left teaching yeah 
But I think if, you know, as I do, when I talk to her now, she still says that was one of the most transformative teaching experience of her life because she found room in her heart that she didn't know existed. Mm. She felt like she was learning. She sort of realized that like she had way more agency and power as a teacher than she was feeling when she was trying to like manage kids behavior. Right. But when she really shifted her work to think about supporting this kid and feeling safe and helping him sort of feel like um, he was valued and respected and that this classroom was a safe place for him. Like it really let him grow and mm. it was a process. Like it wasn't just a, you know, it's, this isn't work that yeah. you do it once. You're not going to snap your fingers and it's going to be fixed. <laughs> no, no. But it is. So it's really building a relationship with someone who's terrified to relate to you. Yeah. But there are some principles and some strategies that, that I think when we're paying attention to those things, it really helps. And, mm. I, and I do think that in the end, that is the great gift of this work. Like I've never met a teacher that, did this job because she hated kids. Yeah. Right. But I think when I hear teachers talk about feeling frustrated, it's almost always because they feel like kids are struggling and they don't know what to do. I agree. And in my experience, this is the missing piece, Mm. right? Like we have scripted curriculum, like we have standards, we have accountability, like teachers feel less powerful in yeah. their classrooms. Teachers feel less agency. Kids feel less agency. Everybody feels more accountable to everyone else and less powerful. Yeah. And for people who are traumatized, that's a recipe for explosion. Mm. Mm. And so, you know, emotionally responsive teaching is about recognizing that at the center of a productive relation, learning relationship is a relationship that feels safe. Yeah. And so the book is really about how do we build relationships with kids who are afraid. I love that. I love that. Thank you for that. That's such a great story. And I know that there are educators who can relate to that. And I think the one thing that I took away from that story is, and and as a teacher myself, this was always something that I had to bring myself is the, just even the word assumption, right? We assume kids know how to behave. We assume kids know how to do the right thing. We assume kids have some type of experience. And for the most part, we take those assumptions based on our own experiences. When I was in second grade, I knew how to, I knew how to follow the rules. Why don't others, right? We start making assumptions and it's, it's, I think stepping back from those assumptions, looking at what are the emotions behind the behavior that's causing the behavior and not just trying to correct the behavior because there is other, there's might be other things behind that that are just, that we need to dig into. Right. And I think that's a big thing, but as you were telling that story, I'm just thinking it's the assumptions we make sometimes gets us in trouble and being able to take a step back and thinking about the assumptions we have about the children in front of us. I think it's just such a great reflective lens for us to be thinking about as educators constantly. Yeah. That, so. the, I think, you know, one of the questions that you sent before was about hope. Yeah. And I think this really connects to that for yeah. me because, you know, I've, like I said, I've never met a teacher in my life that that does this job because they hate children or they don't feel any hope for them. Right. But the problem is that that if we aren't aware of our fears, right, that can really or our assumptions that can really overwhelm our hope. Right. Mm. So I've spent most of my career working with children who are homeless or who are you know economically disadvantaged or traumatized, and. Um, I've also, you know, worked in sort of some of these elite institutions and 
the thing, like when I ask teachers, regardless of the student they're teaching, of the, of the student identities that they're teaching, the hopes are almost always the same. You know, mm. like everybody wants their kids to like grow up, have a sure. good life, get an education. But the fears that we have of and for those kids are very different. So, mm. you know, when I, if you have kids in elite school, like we're afraid that the kids aren't going to feel valued or they're not going to have choices of their elite colleges or, <laughs> right. but when you work with children in environments that are more, distressed, you know, we worry about those kids getting shot, getting in trouble, hurting us, hurting each other, not having choices. And so what I found is that it's really our fear much more than our hope that Mm. determines our pedagogy. Right. And so when we teach from a place of fear, you know, there is a lot of like, sit down, shut up, be quiet, don't pay attention. Because if you get out of line, you might get arrested, you might get shot, you might get in trouble, you might get out of control, and then what's going to happen to me, right? And so I think when, you know, again, because most of my work has been with kids who are navigating stress, trauma, economic disadvantage, these are children for whom people hold a lot of fear. Yeah. And when I look at their, the ways that they're being taught, it is almost always from this fear-based perspective. So the kids are behind on reading. So we're going to spend all day giving them reading words. Right. Well, you know, if you spend all day being force fed information, like when are you going to learn to think critically and creatively and solve problems? Or if school becomes one more place that makes you feel stupid, why are you going to want to keep going? That's right. Right. Versus kids who are, you know, more economically advantaged. We spend most of the day asking them to make choices and asking them what they think about things. Yeah. Right. So they do feel important yeah. versus assessing kids and making them feel stupid or farther mm. behind. And so to your point, I think we have to be so vigilant about what is animating our teaching life. I love that. Because when kids are afraid, when kids live in a world that's scary, when kids are doing scary things, it is so easy to teach them from a place of fear and then we just keep showing them the scary world and that and they just become more afraid. And then we're kind of in that dance again. Yeah. And unless children have a chance to sort of live in the world of possibility in the world of our hopes, they're not going to develop the skills and attitudes and perspectives to like dwell there. Right. And so so it kind of you know, it doesn't matter how bad things are in a kid's life. They have to have some of their life and hopefully a lot of it where they are being able to experience learning in the context of hope. Mm. Um, That's it. And so, you know, I call that teaching from hope versus teaching from fear. And a lot of times, you know, I'll have teachers say, you know, Dr. Wright, what do I do? What do I do? What I do? And I'm like, you know, I think you probably know what to do. I think we just have to think about for whom you're doing it. Right. So if I said, what if you were teaching these students and not those students, what you would do? And they would say, Oh, I would do this, 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 and this. I would say, if you didn't have to worry about this, how would you do that? And they would say, Oh, I would do this, 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 and this. And I would say, you got to do that, that, that. (laughs) Those are the things you need to do. Those are the things you need to do. (laughs) If you want your students to be able to do that, right. You can't teach them from this place of fear and then suddenly expect them to view the world as being filled with possibility. Ooh, I like that. I love that. Well, besides writing the book, emotionally responsive teaching, 
you are also the director and founder of the Basis Project. Can you talk a little bit about that project and how that connects to the rest of the work that you do? And, and what do we in K-12 need to be thinking about? Yeah, for sure. So the BASIS project, BASIS stands for Building Academic, Social, and Emotional Sports for Young Children Experiencing Homelessness in School. And so about 12 years ago, um, I was really interested in kind of thinking about sort of where in the world to sort of focus my work. And what I realized is that young children experiencing homelessness are probably the most underserved children in Mm. society that, um, the younger you are, the more likely you are to be homeless. So there are more homeless six-year-olds than 60-year-olds. But the vast majority of resources are targeted at adults or adolescents. And, And so typically the, you know, historically, we sort of have this idea that if you help families, that kids will do better. But the problem is that the families struggle, the kids don't really have another chance to do better. Better, And so, um, so I think we should still keep helping families, but we should also think about how to help kids, especially when their families are struggling. And so I've really dedicated most of my career to thinking about how to support young kids who are experiencing Mm -hmm. homelessness. Mm -hmm. The school environment is the most stable environment typically for kids and families who are experiencing homelessness. Um, And so I've been sort of thinking about how do we support these young children in schools, uh, Basis is a partnership with the Madison Metropolitan School District. Okay. And so we've been working together for years now to place UW students as mentors with young homeless children. So pre-K through second grade in the Madison schools. The UW students um, take a year-long class with me and they learn all about homelessness, child development, mentoring, relationship building. And then they're partnered with a young child who's homeless or highly mobile and they work with that children that child for a year. And even if the child um, sort of moves during the year and changes schools, as long as it's within the district, then our mentor can actually follow the child. And oh, so, wow. so it, in some cases, our mentors are the most stable yeah. people in the child's lives. Um, and some of our mentors have managed to work with kids for multiple years. And so it's a really intense kind of relational intervention. Mm. Um and it's been transformative for our students, but also, I think, for the children. Yeah. We found that attendance is actually higher on the days that mentors show up. And parents wow. will tell us that, you know, regardless of what's happening, when the day that the kids know that their, you know, their first grader knows that their mentor's coming, yeah. they say, Mom, you got to get me to school. Like, I have oh, to go wow. to school today. Um, and around this um, sort of work with homeless children and families and mentors, And then my sort of work with teachers and with the kids as a therapist, that's where the idea for emotionally responsive teaching has really been born as well. Um, I've spent a lot of time in classrooms and working with kids and teachers and sort of watching kind of what are the things that help them connect and what are the things that help them disconnect. And so I've been doing a lot of professional development training and coaching and mentoring and therapy with teachers and kids for years. And the book really is the culmination of that. Awesome. of that work. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Uh, and for all that you are doing for, for, for kiddos and for teachers and supporting, you know, K-12 education. Again, that book is emotionally responsive teaching. We will make sure there is a link to it in the show notes. We'll also make sure there is a link over to the basis project. Uh, so people can learn more about that. Uh, Dr. Wright, is there any other place it would be good for people if they want to reach out to you to learn more about you, maybe uh, have you come in and do some trainings with them? Where's a good place for people to go? Uh, yeah, to, absolutely. To reach you out can to you? Uh, Google 
Travis Wright at University of Wisconsin Madison, and that should take you to my faculty page. Or you All right. can, folks can email at travis.wright at wisc.edu. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you, sir. I really appreciate you uh, spending some time with us today, telling your stories, uh, sharing your book and your knowledge with us as we focus here on just this idea around mental health and, and well-being uh, to start the new year. So appreciate it. Thanks, Jeff. My pleasure. 